back to Peace in Their Time, episode 49, The Other Empires. Up to now, I've focused entirely on the British Empire and what it meant to the UK and how it influenced that country's ability to project its power across the globe. Suffice to say, that overseas empire was vital, and the British were far from the only people to have a colonial empire to enhance the wealth of the homeland. Right alongside them were their continental allies and imperial rivals, the French. And in the warm waters of the southwest Pacific, there was the oddly large empire controlled by the Netherlands, which is where I'll be starting today. You might have noticed after we left Europe that I didn't provide any introduction to the smaller states of Western Europe that got sucked into World War II. Uh, the reason for that is because they didn't really cause the war in any way, whether actively or through their own passiveness, nor did they contribute to regional instability like pretty much all of the Central European states. Uh, sorry if you were expecting me to go over the inner politics of Luxembourg, but I gotta draw the line somewhere. The Dutch, though, had a very valuable possession on the other side of the planet that was going to be very important to the calculations of the Japanese Empire and the course of the war. We know it today as the nation of Indonesia, but back then it was still called the Dutch East Indies. I call this huge collection of islands important because along with British Malaya, it was the prime target of eventual Japanese aggression. Like Malaya, but on an even grander scale, the East Indies possessed vast quantities of raw materials, especially oil and rubber. Its invasion and rapid conquest in early 1942 would be a crowning achievement of Japanese arms, both as a demonstration of how far it could reach and for the vital prizes they were determined to win. The land that made up this prize was an astonishingly far-flung one, the islands of Indonesia comprise over 17,000 islands stretched across over 3,000 miles, a similar length to the continental United States. With the world's equator running through it, the archipelago is an extremely hot land, lush and green with tropical environments, broken by mountain ranges, riddled with volcanoes. The languages and cultures are as diverse as you might imagine, and well beyond my capabilities to describe in full. My purpose in even bringing up the place is to introduce you to the unwelcome colonial state that found itself in a war it was woefully ill-prepared for. The Dutch presence in the East Indies goes back centuries, and came about due to the infamous spice trade that Europeans went crazy for back in the days when pepper was a novelty. The colonial empire that the Dutch started spread all across the world, but as the years ticked by and Holland was outpaced by its larger competitors, that empire retracted. They still clung to their centerpiece, though, which was the island of Java, in the south center of the archipelago, and to this day, the center of Indonesia's national administration. They also held strips of land on outlying islands, but Java was the most important part, and much of the island chain went unclaimed by the Western empires, enjoying independence until the 1870s, when the Dutch decided to take over as much of the region as they could before somebody else did. In 1873, the first campaign was launched against the Sultanate of Aceh, on the northern tip of the island of Sumatra, which itself is the westernmost island of Indonesia. It was easy for the Dutch to move into the area, but it took them three decades to even begin to call it pacified. They experienced their own miniature Vietnam War there, fighting an enemy in the jungles and scattered villages of a land wholly foreign to them. The war was only wound down when the Dutch hit upon the good old colonial strategy of divide and conquer. The Aceh nobility had grown tired of war, and in exchange for protection of their privileged positions, agreed to cut off their support to the resistance movement. The Dutch then started burning down villages, suspected of supporting resistance fighters, 
and by 1903 the fight had largely ended. Three decades on, with 60,000 dead Achenese, 37,000 dead Dutch troops of various nationalities, and 10,000 people fleeing to neighboring Malaya. A steep price, but Aceh was believed to have oil, which was true, so it was all considered worth it. Aceh would be ruled by local nobles on behalf of the Dutch, and the region would see sporadic resistance all the way down to the Japanese invasion, at which point the Japanese had to deal with revolts during their own occupation. The case of Bali and Lombok went better for the Dutch, less so for the locals. The two islands are adjacent to Java, with the Hindu Balinese ruling over the Muslim Sazak who lived on Lombok. The Sazak approached the Dutch in 1894 with stories of abuse, and the Dutch decided it was a good opportunity to occupy both. This went way better than the Acha War, and like that conflict, foreign rule was established by co-opting the local nobility. In the decade between 1900 and 1910, the other islands started getting picked off as well. Many saw their local rulers make their accommodations with the Dutch, preferring to avoid decades of warfare that Acha had suffered through. The last piece to fall into place was Western Papua, the easternmost island, and one split between the East Indies and Australia. Attempts to fully incorporate that distant province proved fruitless, though. Once away from the coastline, the landscape turned into brutally rugged tropical mountains that proved impossible to penetrate, or more importantly, profitless. This island would, oddly enough, though, become a central point of conflict in the future Pacific War, as its location made it a vital stepping stone for the Japanese to move further south and isolate Australia. While neutralizing the Japanese threat there, was paramount before the Allies moved into the Philippine Sea. While the islands had been won and a huge new empire conquered, there remained the little matter of actually keeping it. The Dutch were not quite the economic or demographic dynamos of, say, the UK or Germany. They would have to govern the huge area with fewer resources to draw from than their counterparts and across all those islands. As a result, administration was rather thin, with governance largely left in the hands of the traditional elites. For the colonial administration, peace and order were paramount objectives in order to stave off large rebellions that were expensive to deal with. But if the Dutch did not sink their administrative hooks as deeply compared to, say, the British in India, they did match the British in overhauling the economic life of the colony. The conquest of the islands opened them up for foreign enterprises, with rubber and oil being king, but cash crops like tea and tobacco also becoming important. This might be something you already guessed, but all these enterprises were operated by companies controlled by the Dutch, so the ultimate profit went back to the Netherlands or into the hands of local Europeans who had settled in the East Indies. The rapid expansion over just a few decades of these kinds of enterprises created a boom that drew settlers from all over Europe. Most led unremarkable lives, laboring away, trying to cash in on the economic expansion. Some, though, did strike it rich and would establish stately town manners in the localities they operated in especially in the colonial capital of Batavia, modern-day Jakarta. These urban castles were emblematic of the European elite's approach to interacting with the natives they lorded over, distant and indifferent to their well-being. Other colonial states had deliberately unbridgeable gaps between Europeans and natives when it came to social interactions, but in the East Indies these gaps were more like chasms with jagged spikes at the bottom. The two groups kept their distance, and as a result the interactions between them took very limited forms such as employers ordering around uh, native sub-bosses, or the colonial administration conferring with some local authority. Social interactions were virtually non-existent, and the natives came to know European arrogance all too well. 
Heck, the colonial government even instituted dress codes to prevent the vast majority of natives from dressing like Europeans, so that they didn't, quote-unquote, forget their place. This type of thing really didn't help secure any strong foundations of European rule, as by the 1920s, there were only 250,000 Europeans present, compared to over 52 million natives, a population that would grow to 60 million by 1930. And the majority of those Europeans were there to score some money and scuttle back home with their gains. And there was ample money floating around, as the islands produced 37% of the world's rubber at its peak in the 1930s. And true to their old namesake, these Spice Islands, they produced 86% of the world's pepper. The Royal Dutch Shell Company by 1930 was exporting $76 million worth of oil, or $1.2 billion in today's dollars. But like the example of India, what money did go back into investments in the East Indies did so to expand resource extraction operations, which also included railroad networks that serviced those operations. The only public services the Dutch administration was much concerned in was improving the hygiene of urban areas and stemming the tide of tropical diseases. These measures were doubly so self-preservation measures to keep Europeans healthy and a means in which to keep the working populace of the natives productive. There was next to no industrial development despite the money and resources, and the islands were designed to be importers of manufactured goods for as long as colonial rule lasted. This also exposed them to market swings, as depending on cash crops and minerals means that when demand slackens abroad, there's no domestic industries to count on as customers. You're just out of luck. This negligence helped fuel a nationalist movement that spread across the whole of the colonial state and created a very receptive audience to Japanese propaganda promising a liberation from European tyranny. The tensions in the East Indies were exacerbated by an expanding population. I mentioned a moment ago that it grew by almost 10 million between 1920 and 1930, and this naturally created an increased demand for food. However, more and more land was being turned over to cash crops, which meant that the land available for growing food went down, while the mouths to feed went up. Then there were multiple droughts from 1900 and 1920, making the problem still worse. Then there were a series of volcanic eruptions in East Java and Bali in 1917. The Spanish flu, which I haven't brought up at all, but will one of these days, claimed 2 million lives in the East Indies alone in 1918. The scale of misery in the region was impressive, even by the standards of the day. These disasters, the growing food scarcity and growing poverty as much of the population switched to wage-paying jobs as laborers, all added up to a fragile-as-hell society, and that was before the Depression. Public despondence manifested itself in fringe spiritual movements, often in the form of mystics or prophets declaring that they were nearing the time when the outsiders would be expelled from their lands in an apocalyptic fury, which, given how things were going at the time, probably seemed at least a little plausible. And it was in spiritualism that people did find their escape before more mature national movements had fully developed. Leadership among the native elites was fatally compromised by their collaboration with the Dutch, even though their own interests were steadily undermined. As part of their efforts to reform the colonial government in the early 1900s, the Dutch started to confiscate land held by nobles in exchange for a steady salary. The nobility was now almost literally being turned into colonial civil servants. For the nobles, this was potentially ruinous, as the salaries couldn't upkeep their large households and staff. But they got to keep their titles and turn to extracting payments from their peasants, increasing again the burdens on the already impoverished. And to top it off, they would also work with the European business owners to undermine the position of the natives in exchange for a cut of the action. It was, like almost all colonial administrations, an unsustainable situation. 
It's in that unhappy state that I'll leave the East Indies for now. When I pick up again with them in the 30s, the authorities will be dealing with a populace ready to see them gone. The next set of colonies I want to turn to are going to be the French Empire. This combined unit comprised the second largest empire of its kind on the planet, behind only the British. And like the British, the overseas empire gave France much more options as a great power, while also saddling it with more responsibilities. As I covered in the French episodes already, there was a stark power imbalance both economically and demographically between France and Germany before World War I, and after the war, there was always the fear that one day the Germans would recover from their defeat sufficiently to endanger France again. With Russia no longer a strategic ally, and the British appearing non-committal to French security, the resources of the world empire became very attractive as at least a partial solution to their problems. This outlook wasn't about face of opinion compared to the pre-World War I years, as there was constant political controversy to France's colonial expansion in the decades leading up to 1914. The national mission was to get Alsace-Lorraine back from the Germans and put that country in its place, not diluting precious resources painting the map France's color. The French established colonies primarily on the African continent, with the biggest Asian holding being Indochina. Many of these places were distant and of dubious value upon first inspection, and France went back and forth on how much they wanted to sink into the empire. And that needed investment didn't really happen for many regions until after the conflict of World War I. From an economic perspective, most of the empire was just vast expanses waiting for exploitation, and were not immediate uh, contributors. Still, once World War I got underway, the value of having 60 million additional subjects on hand proved to be a benefit all by itself. Hundreds of thousands of colonial troops were sent to fight, and tens of thousands lost their lives on behalf of their overlords. Granted, this was a drop in the bucket compared to the slaughter of the larger war, but it was also something France was only just starting to try out. The British certainly noticed, and given their own benefit from maintaining a separate Indian army, were a little nervous of their ally going all in on a colonial army of their own. So much so that when it came time to dole out Germany's colonies as League of Nations mandates, the British specified that France wasn't to recruit from their populations. And not just the additional manpower is valuable, with the threat of German invasion removed for the time being, the French could more properly begin developing the colonies to better feed the metropole with resources. The colonies, in short, would go from being a distraction to a key component of maintaining France's place among the great powers of the world. The first major colony I want to cover is probably the one Americans are most familiar with, Indochina. Indochina encompassed the modern nations of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia within its administration. This one is important because it was France's home base in the Far East, and also occupied a rather strategic position in the South China Sea. From the coasts of Indochina, one could quickly reach British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, which is why the Japanese Empire became interested in the region when France suffered some, uh, invasion troubles. And that use as a base further south is exactly what the Japanese Empire would use the territory for in 1941 and 42. The economic output of the colony was nothing to sneer at either, making it a key prize in Southeast Asia. But it was also a distant land from the metropole of France, and both its acquisition and development followed a freebooting pattern that wouldn't do the colonizers any favors when it came to building loyalty there. French involvement in the region grew in fits and starts, and the challenges to foreign rule were mostly similar to the ones faced by other European powers before and after them. The region was already governed by distinct states, albeit of a monarchical nature, and while they weren't industrialized, 
they were populous, with centuries of culture behind them. The emperors of Vietnam dominated roughly the same territorial unit by the midpoint of the 1800s as the Vietnamese nation encompasses today, and were also tributaries of the Qing Empire in China, which meant that if France messed with them, they'd have to mess with China. Which, in the mid to late 1800s, wasn't as threatening as it sounds because the Qing were falling apart. In Laos, parts of the region were held in vassalage or outright conquered by the neighboring Kingdom of Siam. Yes, the one from the King and I. This was also the story with the Kingdom of Cambodia, which also had fallen to Siamese vassalage. In short, there was already a network of relationships and regional powers that had staked out their rule in the area. So there was no power vacuum to exploit, and unlike in, say, Africa, really no factions to play off against each other. If France wanted in, they'd have to force their way in. And doing that would not be easy. As you might already be aware from every piece of media coming from the Vietnamese War, Indochina is rugged. There are jungles, mountains, hills, isolated highlands, and back then there was a lack of transportation options. The heat and prospect of disease would eat the unwary conqueror up. Despite its proximity to China, even the most powerful and dynamic empires coming from there could only temporarily add parts of the region to their collections. And why would France, of all nations, decide to get involved in so uninviting a place? Well, they were lacking in East Asian colonies, and there was a lobby pushing that if they didn't get into the region, the British would. And it was also proposed that a French presence there could also help them get into China. But the thing that wound up getting them involved initially was the presence of Catholic missionaries. For centuries, missionaries had been active in Vietnam and had managed to secure hundreds of thousands of converts, which in turn triggered a backlash against foreign cultural influence. Napoleon III who you might remember as the great loser of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, ordered a military intervention in 1857 to protect French interests. The French invaded southern Vietnam, waging a brutal four-year war in the south and gaining a base of operations in the provinces around Saigon. In the conflict, the Vietnamese couldn't match the French army head-to-head, but the French had too few troops to conquer areas outside Saigon. This resulted in the first of many guerrilla wars where the French would blaze a trail of destruction to root out resistance. In 1862, the Emperor of Vietnam reconciled himself to not being able to dislodge the French and surrendered some of his southern provinces. Two years later, the French would annex more of the south, which went unopposed by an exhausted imperial court. In 1863, the French also secured the transfer of Cambodia's vassalage from the Siamese over to them, as the king in Cambodia felt that the French were the lesser of two evils. From there, a long lull in conquest set in, broken only by French intervention in northern Vietnam. Business interests had been developing there, hoping to use it as a base to economically exploit both that location and southern China. In 1882, a small French unit went to check out reports of unrest and wound up storming the city of Hanoi. The Qing took exception to this, and suddenly France and China were at war. That struggle was inconclusive, but it did net France North Vietnam and the Chinese withdrew their interest in the area. Suddenly, the Vietnamese state had lost their great benefactor. By 1887, the final central part of the country was finally in France's grasp. The final part of French Indochina was added in 1893, when the French went to war with Siam and secured Laos, followed in 1896 by snatching up an addition to Cambodia, also at Siam's expense. This finalized Indochina's borders, and also made a bitter enemy in the form of the nation of Siam whose successive governments would buy their time for a moment of French weakness to get back at them. And now that France had a respectable chunk of land in East Asia, they set about to exploit it. And when I say they, I mean the French business class specifically. 
With the task of actually taking the colony complete, the local government faded in the background, content to let businesses grow up with minimal supervision. And it turned out that Indochina was kind of a bonanza for France, at least up until the end of the 1920s. The lands of the Mekong River to the south and Red River to the north were wildly productive rice growers, producing a quarter of all rice exports in the world. Numerous rubber plantations were set up, churning out tons of the precious resource and providing the main supply for French industry. There were also rich mineral resources there as well, including something of a rarity in the East Asian colonies, coal. Supplies of that resource were second only to the Chinese region of Manchuria in all of East Asia. Forestry was a major operation as well, to the point where, by the 1920s, there was a public outcry as much of Indochina was becoming deforested, with some areas seeing a fifth of their forests disappear. It got so bad that conservation groups started springing up, and reforesting efforts took shape after only a few decades of logging activity. The French also came to develop an actual industrial base in the colony as well, producing textiles, concrete, and various consumer goods. Uh, this might be at the surface something of an oddity. The entire point of having colonies was for resource extraction, where either basic goods are sent to the metropole for producing finished ones, or simply sold onto the global market. Industries in the colonies would mean competition to industries back at home. In the British Empire, for example, the only really industrialized colonies were the white dominions in India, which had an economy so large an industrial sector was always going to spring up at some point. The difference in France's case was that the metropole's industry was insufficient to actually meet local demands. There simply weren't enough factories in France to meet the demands of the Indochinese market, which, yeah, was kind of a knock on France's economic performance. But all this activity meant that Indochina was a profitable colony, and not just in the sense that it served the business class, it actually had budget surpluses, oftentimes large ones. But just to be clear, all these benefits were for France's sake, uh, not Indochina's. Work on the rice and rubber plantations was just as brutal as the farming operations in, say, Africa, uh, mine work was never great, and everything suffered from a lack of mechanization. Despite all the money sloshing around the colony, it mostly went back to France and the coffers of the elites there. The businesses didn't even bother reinvesting into their own operations, usually, and the budget surpluses of the colonial administration were sunk into infrastructure projects meant to encourage more exploitive businesses. And this didn't go unnoticed by the populace either. Pretty much from the time the first French troops entered Saigon, there had been guerrilla resistance to their rule. While the activities of the anti-French groups saw an ebb and flow in activity, when they were active, the struggles were often brutal, the French usually sweeping village by village in their efforts to root out partisans. The most effective French response to resistance, though, was in co-opting the local rulers. Royalty of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos were kept on as puppets of the French regime, and while the fiction of their sovereignty was clear to everyone, most of the national elites used their cooperation as an excuse to reconcile themselves to foreign rule. So even when tensions escalated into violence, there weren't any traditional national figures to rally around, which kept most of these conflicts to local affairs. That being said, the people of Indochina didn't become more passive as time went on. Far from it. Especially in Vietnam, associations and secret societies started forming to provide some outlet for dissent. An important characteristic of these groups is that the people attracted to them began to shed their attachment to the old order and the class of national leaders around the captive throne that had entered the French orbit. Given that they operated as independent groups with their own rules and rosters across the colony, they were a diverse lot, but a guiding sense of nationhood and nationalism kept them focused against the French and not each other. This is also where the Vietnamese communists come in, who counted the very important future leader Ho Chi Minh among its ranks. 
During the 20s, he operated under different aliases, but I'm sticking with his most famous name to avoid confusion. He personally did a lot of work organizing among the Vietnamese community in France proper, where, ironically, he was able to operate more openly as authorities there typically had other priorities than monitoring a small community of colonial expats. That lack of attention was a big help, as a lot of the members of the nationalist cells spent time in France, and ergo, Paris became a place to coordinate and get in touch. Now, the communist element was a relatively small part of the overall national movement in those days, but was growing its influence on account of its popularity with both the highly educated and the actual workers. Plus, there was some aid coming from outside coming their way as well. I'll get more into it in the China episodes, but the Soviets sent a full mission to China to spread the revolution there, and Indochina was included as a little side project. Prospective Vietnamese revolutionaries were welcomed into southern China, where the Soviets had set up shop and were working with allied Chinese groups. In China, these guys would get an education in both war and politics. And once their training was completed, they headed back south with the intent of setting up active resistance cells. And with the success of the Chinese Communist Party in the mid-20s, communism kind of became the cool ideology to follow and emulate. And the broader movement supporting independence became younger and more forward-thinking by the 20s as well, becoming less enamored with tradition. Which was bad news for the French, because their preference was for a traditional life to continue unchanged, as it was easier for them to manage. The alienating nature of colonial life meant that by the end of the 1920s, their numbers had grown to a force to be reckoned with, and the youthful membership wanted to actively combat the French. Insurrections were planned, but the assassination of a French official on February 9, 1929 in Hanoi prompted the colonial regime to overreact. Through the 1910s and 1920s, they had been trying to bring more natives in the administration, both to streamline French rule and add it some legitimacy by giving locals a stake in it. The French were under the impression the populace was doing fine, and therefore had missed the changes in public discourse over the years. This was bad in the short term for the resistance groups, though, because once presented with a challenge, the French weren't entirely sure who to strike back at, so they went after everybody. Mass arrests took place by the thousands, and in this heated atmosphere, a member of a resistance cell in Saigon was murdered on the street. The colonial police would arrest a thousand suspects. A heavy-handed response meant more to keep people they didn't like off the street than find the killer. Resistance groups started planning an insurrection for 1930, but authorities caught wind of it and started actively hunting anyone not already arrested. There would be an insurrection. It didn't go well, but nationalist sentiments weren't going away. It would only get worse in the Depression. That's where I'll leave it to China for now. Still a vital component of the French Empire, but set to begin its disintegration that would only be sped up once the Japanese intervened a decade later. Next week, we'll round out our coverage of the French Empire with their northern, western, and equatorial African possessions. These fast tracts of land were, like into China, relatively new acquisitions, sans Algeria, but they would become vital as France sought ways to expand its economy and boost their available manpower pool in comparison to their eastern rival. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.